Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? It's a question that we see in Scripture a few times. In Mark 10, we see the rich young ruler ask Jesus this question. We see it again in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas' jailer ask them, what must I do to be saved? I think it's a question that we all have at some point in our lives. For some of you, maybe it's the question that brought you here this morning. For others, it may have been the question that brought you to church however long ago that was for the first time. Here in Psalm 15, we see David ask that very same question, and it's in this passage that God gives us the answer through David. As I teach this morning on Psalm 15, I want to invite you all to think about this psalm with me through the lens of three different questions. First, what is God's holy hill? Second, how do we get there? And third, knowing that answer, what do we do now? So the three points, what is God's holy hill? How do we get there? And what do we do now? First, what is God's holy hill? In verse one of Psalm 15, we read, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David is asking this question in a really particular way here. He doesn't simply ask, who goes to heaven? He actually doesn't even mention anything about heaven or the new earth here. He starts with this, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, a tent was a common form of temporary shelter back in those days, but it was also the earliest form of the tabernacle, which was where God dwelt among his people Israel in the Ark of the Covenant. Early English translations of this verse even translate it as, who shall sojourn in your tabernacle? So David is asking, who is worthy to abide with you, God? Who is worthy to live with God where he is? Who could possibly be worthy of that? Notice that this is very, very personal language. You don't just invite anyone to come into your house, much less dwell among you. In the tabernacle, only the priests were allowed to go in, and only the holy high priest was able to go into the holy of holies and stand before God. It was a limited group of people who were even allowed in there, much less be there for any amount of time. It was only a short amount of time that they were there. So David isn't just asking who is able to be before God, just to enter his presence. He's saying who is worthy to dwell with and be with God. And then he asks this, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, the imagery of the holy hill is one used often in the Psalms. It appears actually throughout Scripture, almost always in reference to Jerusalem, or more specifically in reference to the holy Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now, Mount Zion is a very important place to the Jewish people. And it's really important to David in particular. It was David as king who captured Zion from the Jebusite people and moved the capital of Israel there and established what is known as the city of David, or Jerusalem as we might call it. So when we turn to the Old Testament and we turn to the New Testament and we see views of heaven or of the new earth at the end times, we often see reference in scripture to, uh, especially in Revelation, to the holy hill of Zion 
or to the new Jerusalem. And to the Jewish people or to early Christians, they would have read these things and they would have understood references to Zion or the new Jerusalem to be the place where God calls the faithful to in their death and where we as Christians will dwell with God at the new creation. It's actually referenced right before this psalm in Psalm 14 when David writes, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So question one, what is God's holy hill? God's holy hill is the place where he dwells and where he calls those whom he loves to abide with him and to commune with him forever. Sounds amazing, right? It's what we want, but there's a problem. David knows it. Only the worthy are allowed to dwell there with God. Only the worthy. So David's problem is our problem as well. What must I do to be saved? How can I be worthy to dwell with God? And that leads us to our second question of how do we get there? So we know what God's holy hill is. How do we get there? So I've been living in Oklahoma for seven years now, all of my adult life, and one thing I know about Oklahomans is that Oklahomans are doers. Oklahomans are hard workers. People in this church are doers and are hard workers. I've seen how dedicated you are to your jobs, to your families, to the volunteer opportunities that you do, to the community, and for those of you that are in school, how much hard work you put into your schoolwork. I've seen it, hard workers. Even the state motto, which I found out this week, hints at this. Our state motto is labor omnia winket, which if you speak Latin, I probably butchered that pronunciation. I'm sorry. But it means this. It means labor conquers all. It originates actually with Caesar Augustus and Roman. He was trying to get people to be farmers for the sake of the empire. But it was championed in the U.S. labor union movement in the early 1900s. And at its core, the motto means this. Anything can be achieved if the hard work is applied. If you put the work into it, you can earn it. You can do it. You can achieve it. You just have to work hard enough. And many of us treat life this way, right? Do it yourself. If given the choice between hard work and earning something or being given it for free, I think many of us would actually choose to work for it and to earn it rather than just be given it. There is a satisfaction about being able to apply ourselves and to apply our gifts and to sweat for something and to see the outcome and to earn it for ourselves. It should come as no surprise to anybody that people in Oklahoma do not like handouts. We want to earn it. And when it comes to Christianity and it comes to this passage, I think this mindset still applies. Many of us just want to know, what do I do? How do I do it? When do I do it? Just give me a list, and I'll be good. I'll be set. Just tell me what to do. Well, we're in luck, because God does just that through David here in Psalm 15. David writes out a list of standards that are required for someone to be worthy of dwelling with God. And for many of us, we hear, oh, we see a list, we're like, let's go. I've got it. I just need to know where I'm good, and I need to know where I need to put in the work. This is awesome. Well, at camp a few weeks ago, we played this game called Last Man Standing, where everyone would stand up in the room, and the announcer would say something like, sit down if you got less than three hours of sleep last night. And like all the leaders would need to sit down, because, yeah, camp is rough that way. 
Now, I'm not gonna make you all actually stand. We're not gonna play the game for real, but I want you to imagine, as I'm about to go through this list, that you're standing. And I'm gonna read these standards that David gives us, and I want you, again, to imagine if you have failed that standard, you would sit down. You would be out of the game. You would not be worthy. Let's see which of us is worthy by our work to be with God and to dwell with him on his holy hill. All right, let's start in verse two. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Hmm. If you've ever done anything wrong or you've ever sinned in your life, I'm sorry, you would be out of the game. I know I would be seated right now. I do not walk blamelessly and I have not always done what is right. But for the sake of the list makers in the room, maybe, maybe we'll, we're good on the rest of them, right? Maybe we struggle with that one a little bit, but maybe we can be good on the rest. Let's keep going. And speaks truth in his heart. So if you've ever lied or you've sought falsehood, then uh, I'm sorry, you would have to be seated on this one. Next, he who does not slander with his tongue. So if you've ever said something mean or evil to someone, then... Yeah, that one would get you out. I'm sorry, you would fail here. And does no evil to his neighbor. So if you've ever done something mean or evil to someone, yep, okay, Hmm, this is tough. Uh, Next one, nor takes reproach against his friend. In the Hebrew, the meaning of reproach means to taunt or to insult or to annoy a friend. If you've ever done one of those things, then yeah, I guess you would have to be seated for that one. Next, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So if you've ever approved of something that scripture deems to be sinful, or if you've ever failed to honor another Christian, yeah, this is not, this is not the one where you succeed either. The next is, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, this one, I think, is the most confusing one here in language, Um, but I did some research, and I found a quote from pastor and theologian John Piper, who has this to say about what this means. He says, what that means is that he makes a promise, and even if it hurts to follow through on it, he does not change his commitment. His word is more valuable than money, his integrity more precious than his wealth. He stands by his word, even if it hurts. So, if you've ever gone back on a promise because you found out that it would ultimately hurt you to keep it, then this one would cause you to have to sit down. And finally, verse five, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. In short, if you have been greedy with your money for the sake of increasing it at the expense of someone else, then that means you would fail this last one as well. All right, how'd we do? For many of you, that might have been extremely frustrating, right? You got out of the first one, and then over and over again, you're hearing like, oh, nope, I've failed at that one, I've failed at that one, I have not met that standard. Hearing over and over again that you have failed to work hard enough, failed to be good enough, is discouraging. And it might even seem unfair, To think about it that way actually reminds me of the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
Now, I know that many of you have seen it or you have seen some iteration of it or you know the story, but for those that don't, Willy Wonka is a world-famous candy maker. And Charlie Bucket and four other kids win the golden ticket and they're able to go to the factory and tour it, which is something nobody has ever done in a long, long time. And as the tour goes on, though, the children, one by one, fall prey to temptations that seem to target their weaknesses. Augustus Gloop and his gluttony. Violet Beauregard and her pride. Verica Salt and her greed. One by one, the children fall victim to situations curated to expose their weaknesses. And at the end of the movie, we find out that Wonka had set up the tour to try to find someone who is worthy to inherit his factory, someone pure of heart. But everyone, yet even Charlie, had failed. The rules were too extreme, and the players were just far too sinful. Now, at the end, Charlie like, redeems himself with some candy and doesn't sell it and all that stuff. But for the most part, they are all just far too sinful to be worthy and why I'm reminded of this story is that when I read Psalm 15, it seems like God has laid out the game of salvation to be one that I am always destined to lose. I cannot complete any of those things on the list. It seems to target the very core of our sinful hearts. And for those of us who value hard work or playing by the rules, we find out that the rules make the game unwinnable. You simply, you simply cannot win. You simply, simply cannot be worthy. You are not good enough, and our work does not make us worthy before God. It just doesn't. It never will. If you're familiar with Scripture, this will be nothing new. As Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the temptation is to hear this and to recognize our failures and to dive deeper into our own shame, into our own guilt, and to stay there. I'm not good enough. I never will be. And I stay there. And as I read commentaries and articles about Psalm 15 over the past few weeks, I kept seeing the authors call Psalm 15 the scariest psalm or the saddest psalm. But truly, I think it's the opposite. I do because though the temptation is to drive deeper into our own shame, into our own guilt at our failures to hold up the conditions of Psalm 15, I think the beauty of knowing that I am not good enough points me towards the one who is. If you've been a Christian for a while, I hope you've heard this before, and if you've never heard it, listen to this good news. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He kept every single standard of Psalm 15 but he died in our place as a sacrifice for our sins so that his righteousness might be given to you as a free gift. So now God sees you and you are worthy to dwell on his holy hill. You are. Psalm 5, uh, Romans 5, 9 tells us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Your inability to save yourself that you felt when I read through these requirements of Psalm 15 should point you towards the only one who's able to save you, and that is Jesus. So question two, how do we get to God's holy hill? You don't. Jesus already did for you. 
So to recap question one, what is God's holy hill? It is the place in which he dwells and where he calls those whom he loves to dwell with him forever. And how do we get there? You don't. Jesus did for you. Which leads us to question three, knowing all of this, what do we do now? When you know that no amount of hard work can earn you favor or salvation in God's eyes, the question for a lot of Christians who understand this is, well, then what do I do with my Christian life? What, what is the point of living? What, is the, what, what do I do? What do I do? Do we just ignore this list of ways to live in Psalm 15? Do we sin all the more knowing that we're already saved? Paul asks the same question in Romans 6, and his answer is, by no means. He says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It is this newness of life which we're invited into by God in which we live as Christians. Paul is saying the answer is not because you have been made righteous, now you can sin. He's saying because you have been made righteous, now you can be righteous. Now you can act as one who is righteous. God invites us into a new life of loving him. And that means following his commandments. We read in 1 John 4 that we love because God first loved us. We only love because God loved us first. And Jesus says this in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He does not say, if you can, if you can keep my commandments, then I'll love you. He doesn't say that. He says, I love you, and because I love you, you are able to love me, and if you love me, you will listen to the things I've taught you, and you will obey my teachings. We have been given the freedom, the freedom and the joy to read Psalm 15 and know that though we cannot keep this list, God has invited us into a life where we're invited to try. And when we fail, and we do fail, and we will fail over and over again, we do not retreat into our shame and to our despair and stay there, but instead we look more and more to the work of Christ on the cross, that we are forgiven, and we're free to keep living for him. That is what we do now. We are free to keep living for God. Earlier, at the beginning of my sermon, I mentioned two other instances in scripture where someone asks the question, what must I do to be saved? I think each of those stories has something to teach us about what we do now with our lives as Christians, knowing that our salvation is not given to us by our good works. First, I believe the story of the rich young ruler has a lot to teach those of us who still want to work our way to righteousness. In Mark 10, when the rich young man comes before Jesus and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Jesus tells him, follow the commandments. And now being the hard worker that he is, the young man says, I have. I've been doing it my whole life. I have been following the commandments. I've been doing my best. But Jesus knows that though this man has done his best to be righteous, he has not yet submitted to God in every single area of his life. Jesus tells the man, go and sell all of your possessions and then follow me. But the man was filled with sorrow because he was unwilling to sell his possessions because he had great wealth. 
Now, I think this applies to those of us who focus on our works in the room because you might have most of God's commandments down. You might even feel like you have, you've just got it in your life. Like, like I, I do most of the things that I need to do that I'm told about in church and I read scripture and I know I'm doing all the things. And you might have worked hard to practice this righteousness and you might even be willing to accept that you cannot save yourself. But let me ask you this. What areas in your life are you unwilling to turn over to God? Where is it in your life that you feel like you have it down? That you won't admit your weaknesses and you won't seek help from God? For some of us, that might be our family. I've got it. I'm in control. For some of us, it's our wealth. You've gotten to a good place. For some of us, it's our job. And for some, it's that one sin that you feel like you can get victory over if you just do enough self-denial, if you just read the Bible enough, if you just practice enough good habits, you can get victory over that sin yourself. And we, and I say we because I'm right there with you in this, we need to let go of any notion that we can do any of that on our own apart from God. Do not be like the rich young man and refuse to admit your own weakness and to admit your own idols and let that keep you from following Christ. And you might be saying, well, that's all good and fine, but how, how do I do that? Now, assuming that you've been listening this morning and you know that um, God is ultimately the one who does the work, right? And he has done the work. If you know that, know this as well. We do have a part to play in it. God loves us enough to invite us into the work that he's doing in our lives. God loves you enough to invite you into the work that he is already doing in you. Search yourself. Be honest before God about where you feel as if you don't need him. For some of you, it won't be so easy. It really won't. I encourage you to meet up with one of the elders, to meet up with Blake. Or if you have a therapist or a counselor, talk with them about it. They would be great people to talk to. And once you're able to identify those areas, that is when you turn to God in humility and you turn to God in prayer and you admit your weakness and God meets you where you are in your weakness. And though the progress might be slow, I promise there will be progress. I want you to hear this, that there is goodness in your hard work. There is. It is good for you to work hard, but know that no amount of hard work will increase the amount of love that God already has for you. It's just not possible. And this love was founded and sealed in the work that Jesus already did on the cross. And you were never, you are never, you will never be strong enough to do that same work. I hope that you can embrace your weakness and turn to God alone to look for strength in every single area of your life. Now, the other instance in scripture where someone asks the question, what must I do to be saved, comes from Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in jail, and a great earthquake shakes the jail, and it bursts open the prison doors, and the chains fall off of their arms and their legs. And when the jailer finds this out, he, he's ready to take his own life because he has failed. But Paul and Silas call out to him and they say, hey, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. And the jailer is amazed by their faith and he is amazed by their goodness. And he falls before them and he asks, what must I do to be saved? 
And Paul responds with this. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I think the message for all of us here is this. Stop complicating the message of scripture. Rest in the promise that if you have faith in Christ, you will be saved. That's the answer to that question. And in that faith, let your love for God abound and follow his commandments because you love him and because you love those that he made. That is why we do what we do. Take the list from Psalm 15 and do your best to try and follow it. Not because it earns you a spot on God's holy hill, not because it earns your salvation, but because you love the Savior who has already acquired it for you. I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. I included this quote in the preparation for worship in your bulletin, so you can turn there if you'd like to read it along with me. I think Lewis does an amazing job of explaining how we are to live as Christians. He says this in his book, Mere Christianity. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Please pray with me.